Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. Well, congratulations, first of all, on today's broadcast and podcast and this cast and that cast to the Gulf of Mexico. New Orleans, one of the cities that fronts the Gulf, but Pensacola also, just, I guess, Galveston. Anyway, congratulations to them all, because this year's dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico is surprisingly small. The um, oxygen-depleted water, however, that's the water that is um, got no oxygen in it, is uh, rose higher toward the surface than usual, scientists reported recently. Dead zones are areas in which water at and above the seafloor holds too little oxygen to support marine life, or Navy life for that matter. This dead zone is the fourth smallest ever measured in Louisiana, and only about 40% the average size predicted earlier this year based on nitrogen and other nutrients. They're called nutrients because they're fall-off from uh, fertilizer that gets dumped in the river flowing down the Mississippi. We should not think that the low-oxygen problem in the Gulf is solved. We're not close to the goal size for this hypoxic area, says the head scientist Nancy Rabelais at LSU. The dead zone still covers about 2,700 square miles, rising in some areas as much as three-quarters of the way to the surface. The seafloor area is about 50% larger than the goal set by the Mississippi River Nutrient Hypoxia Task Force. Can I belong? Sounds like good meetings. Each year's oxygen depletion begins as snow melt, followed by spring rains pouring from the Mississippi into the Gulf. The newly deposited fresh water is lighter than salt water, causing two layers to develop. Nitrogen and other nutrients, so-called because it's crap, in the fresh water feed a growth spurt of algae. We'll hear more about algae today with regard to corals uh, and micro- microorganisms at the top. They die and fall to the bottom. Their decay consumes oxygen from the bottom up. Winds over the shallow areas of the dead zone mixed oxygen into the water, Rabelais said, while other winds squeezed oxygen-poor water into narrower confines. The Gulf's hypoxic zone still is the world's second-largest human-caused dead zone, only behind the Baltic Sea. We're not number one even in dead zones. All right, then. And... Congratulations to Austria, which this week made uh, Afghanistan look good. A young Afghan's application for asylum in Austria this week was rejected. This according to the German newspaper Deutsche Welle. And Deutsche Welle to you. Why was his uh, application for asylum rejected? Doubts about his stated sexual orientation. The way you walk, act, and dress does not show even in the slightest that you could be homosexual, the official, the Austrian official reportedly wrote. For this reason, the Austrian official found no grounds for the young man to fear for his safety in Afghanistan. He plans to appeal. In Afghanistan, this is why we fight, ladies and gentlemen, homosexuality is illegal and considered a crime that carries a maximum sentence of death. Homosexuals face rejection from society at large, which considers their sexual orientation immoral. That's why we fight. The young Afghan came to Austria alone two years ago and was placed in a refugee camp. Initially, he rested his asylum case on the fact that he was a part of the Hazara minority, which is persecuted in his home country. That's another reason we fight there. 
later appealed on the grounds of his sexual orientation. Advocates of the teenager said he was initially afraid to come out. In Austria? Really? The uh, migration official concluded he had the potential for aggression that wouldn't be expected from a homosexual. He also noted the young man did not have many friends, preferred to spend time in smaller groups or alone. Aren't homosexuals rather social, the report asked. The teenager said he had kissed straight men before, and the case officer also doubted this account, saying if this was true, the Afghan would have received a beating for it. Congratulations, Austria. You make Afghanistan look good. Hello, welcome to the show. home of the homeless from the edge of the continent 
the Western Edge. I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this edition of the show. Now, ladies and gentlemen, probably the biggest news story of the week. And it's news of the godly. You've probably heard some of this, all right? This is the Attorney General of the State of Pennsylvania talking about a report issued this week by a Pennsylvania grand jury. And I'm here, finally, to announce the results of a two-year grand jury investigation into widespread sexual abuse of children within the Catholic Church and the systematic cover-up by senior church officials in Pennsylvania and at the Vatican. There have been other reports about child sex abuse within the Catholic Church, but never on this scale. For many of us, those earlier stories happened someplace else. Now we know the truth. It happened everywhere. In each diocese, the bishops had the key to the secret archives, which contained both allegations and admissions of the abuse and the cover-up. The grand jury uncovered credible evidence of sexual abuse against 301 predator priests. Over 1,000 child victims were identified by our investigation, though the grand jury notes that they believe that number was in the thousands. As the report reads, we should emphasize that while the list of priests is long, we don't think we got them all. We feel certain that many victims never came forward and that the diocese did not create written records every single time they heard something about abuse. According to the Philadelphia Inquirer, the uh, allegations stretch back to the 1940s, detailing child rapes and groping that mirrored the reports that have roiled the church worldwide. There was a uh, pedophile and child pornography ring in Pittsburgh among priests in the pits in Pittsburgh took pictures of one boy as he posed naked, as if on the cross. The uh, nearly 900-page document accuses church officials in six Pennsylvania dioceses of routinely prioritizing their institution over the welfare of the children in their care. You'll hear something similar moments from now here in News of the Godly. All of the victims were brushed aside in every part of the state by church leaders who preferred to protect the abusers and their institutions above all. The report says priests who were raping little boys and girls and the men of God who were responsible not only did nothing, they hid it all, according to the grand jury. Many of those accused disputed the findings in responses attached to the report. Now from the National Catholic Reporter, appalling sexual abuse of children as young as seven was covered up in two leading Benedictine-run schools in England, to protect the reputations of predatory monks. It would be monks do, monks no see. Uh, this is the conclusion of a government-backed investigation, a British government investigation. The independent inquiry into child sexual abuse said in a report published a couple of days ago that for decades there was a culture of acceptance of abuse behavior at Ampleforth Abbey, New York, and at Downside Abbey, near Bristol. The report said the monasteries remained reluctant to report crimes to the police even after stringent child protection procedures were implemented in the Catholic Church in England and Wales, followed a series 
of high-profile clerical abuse scandals. Monks don't care about scandals. They got the handles. Instead, monks in both institutions were very often secretive, evasive, and suspicious of anyone outside the English Benedictine congregation, says the chairman of the inquiry. Safeguarding children was less important than the reputation of the church and the well-being of the abusive monks. Well, somebody's got to look out for the monks. Even after new procedures were introduced in 2001, when monks gave the appearance of cooperation and trust, their approach could be summarized as a, quote, tell-them-nothing attitude. They did take a vow of silence, didn't they? Some teachers at schools run by the abbeys have been convicted of child abuse offenses. Even a cleaner employed at Ampleforth abused at least 11 boys between 8 and 12 years old during the 1960s and 70s. One of the most notorious abusers at Ampleforth was Pierre's Grant Ferris, known to students as Pervy Piers, who began sexually assaulting children as, nearly as soon as he joined the teaching staff way back in 1966. He was convicted of 20 offenses against 15 boys. He died three years ago. At Downside, Father Nicholas White, a monk jailed for five years in 2012 for abusing boys, was allowed to continue teaching despite a student accusing him of sexual assaults. Ampleforth and Downside are among the most prestigious Catholic independent schools in Britain. This tells you all you need to know about prestige. Dayline Buffalo, the sexual abuse scandal in the Diocese of Buffalo continues to worsen. Eighty clerics now accused of sexual misconduct. Two of the bishop's top aides left his side. What's what's the bishop going to do to protect his sides? Bishop Richard J. Malone is faulting lay Catholics for closing their wallets, you know, not giving money to the church anymore because of the thing. And he's criticizing reporters for their coverage of the sex abuse crisis. At least he's keeping up with the news. The Vatican, in its first response to that damning report by the U.S. grand jury, expressed shame and sorrow. Vatican spokesman Greg Burke also said the Catholic Church must learn hard lessons from its past, and that the Vatican vowed to hold abusers and enablers accountable. But that's only one of the apologies to stem from this crisis. Here's another. We're so sorry. At a news conference after, uh, Tuesday afternoon, the Bishop of Scranton called the Attorney General's report horrific, heartbreaking, and demoralizing. In the Diocese of Scranton, 59 priests were mentioned in the report. The Bishop, Joseph Bambera, said the details of the report were the darkest hours of our church's history. I apologize this afternoon. I apologize to victims. No words that I share will ever be able to take away the pain that you have and continue to experience in your lives, nor can I fully understand what you have and continue to go through. But you need to hear from me that I not only do apologize, but the church clearly let you down. Unquote. The Bishop of Scranton. But on a lighter note, former Cleveland Cavalier Isaiah Thomas, the the one who's playing now, not the one you're thinking of, if you're that age, apparently has mixed feelings about Cleveland. He's now with the Denver Nuggets. This is the National Basketball Association we're talking about here, ladies and gentlemen. He posted an Instagram Live last week naming all cities for which he's played and what he thought about them. When he got to Cleveland, Cleveland was a... I'm going to now bodlerize this for the radio... Cleveland was an it hole, he said. I see why Bron, meaning LeBron James, left again. Sorry, 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 Not too long 
Afterwards, though, he changed his mind, apparently. Cleveland wasn't that bad, he said. I shouldn't have said that. Cleveland was actually cool. It was all right. The situation wasn't the best, but I apologize for saying it was an it-hole. It wasn't an it-hole. The truncated apologies of the week, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast, but now... News of the Olympic Movement. Produced by Jim Ebersol Jr. Well, here is news, ladies and gentlemen, about people who clearly just didn't plan ahead. Talking about the Olympic Committee, the organizing committee in Tokyo. You know, it's really warm in Tokyo right now. And it's maybe going to be really warm about this time next year and the year after that when Tokyo holds the Olympics. The Tokyo Metropolitan Government has carried out an experiment to see if spraying water on pavements could effectively reduce temperatures during those Olympics. The test conducted on a road where the Olympic race walking events will be held reportedly showed that spraying water on the road surface could keep it at around five, well, nine degrees cooler Fahrenheit than the surrounding air. Sprinklers normally used for farming were tested at 4 a.m. and 7 a.m. local time. Where no water was used, the surface temperature exceeded 86 degrees Fahrenheit. Where the um, water was sprayed, it was 80.6. It was pointed out by one Tokyo official that the experiment was conducted during cloudy conditions. It's not known what a system like that would have had in the sun. Potential heat for the Olympics has become a huge concern for Tokyo this summer. Temperatures have soared as high as 105 degrees Fahrenheit. More than 130 people have died. 71,000 admitted to hospital. Japanese government has declared it a national disaster. Tokyo 2020 spokesperson said they're not optimistic about the potential conditions. Ideas have already been discussed. Missed showers and special pavements. Moving the clock forward by two hours. But many experts doubt the effectiveness of measures like that such as installing misters or missuses and using cool air fans. A study team made up of researchers from the University of Tokyo and others sprayed mist from the top of a 9-foot-tall platform. When the temperature was 90, 95 Fahrenheit, the mist did give a sensation of coolness, but it's obviously not enough to beat the scorching heat in the middle of the summer. In a preliminary experiment, the surface temperature of people's skin declined by only 1 degree 1.8 Fahrenheit after being exposed to mist for 10 minutes. The experiment has proven that spraying mist is hardly effective in reducing deep body temperatures that are related to heat stroke. Only marginally helps to alleviate heat stroke, according to a professor of urban energy engineering at the University of Tokyo. Many spectators could be forced to wait outside venues for indoor sports for a long time under the scorching sun. The organizing committee is considering setting up tents with cool air fans inside near where spectators will line up while trying to limit the waiting time to about 20 minutes. Good luck with that. Professor of Environmental Physiology at Tokyo University of Agriculture says such a measure will not be effective enough to prevent heat stroke. Since the time when spectators can use tents is limited, we can't expect the measure to be effective as a whole. Those vulnerable to heat stroke, such as elderly people, should be given priority in using tents. Excuse me, old people coming through. The Tokyo Metropolitan Government and other authorities are insulating pavements on roads that are part of the route for the marathon and race walk events. 
Such pavements could be counterproductive, however, for spectators. An assistant professor of urban environment engineering at Tokyo Metropolitan University says insulating pavements could increase sensory temperature, noting that such pavements reflect sunlight more than asphalt. And one other professor of engineering advises people not to go to the venue if it's too hot. If you feel the scorching heat is unbearable, you should consider choosing not to go. Because it's a movement, and we all need one. Every day. So stay home. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Le Show, one of the biggest news stories of the week, aside from Clearance Gate, as I'm calling it, and copywriting it, by the way. Thank you very much. Is um, the book by the former villain of the Apprentice reality TV series, Omarosa Manigault Newman. It, yes, uh, you probably know by now. If you don't, I'd like to uh, crawl under that rock with you. Uh, in it, she, she makes some fairly explosive charges about <laughs> President Trump, including that he's undergoing a severe mental decline. Now, I've watched a lot of the coverage. I know. Pity me. And uh, I have to admit, not a lot of questions about his mental decline or attempts to confirm or deny his mental decline in the form of, let's call it, for the sake of argument, reporting. So, I don't know. Either it's either it's true or it's true. But at the heart of the coverage, of course, have been the tapes that she produced. I mean, she made them public. They appear to have been real and not produced. Recordings of the chief of staff, John Kelly, firing her, of Donald Trump calling her to say that he didn't know she was going to be fired, of Katrina Pearson, who was a campaign spokesperson, strategizing spin tactics or tacticizing spin strategy regarding the reported existence of a tape of Trump using the N-word. And she has hinted in her interviews, has Omarosa, that there are more tapes, which is what brings us to our guest on the Newsmaker line today. Uh, he's Mr. Roger Schluffman. Yes. Calling via Skype, I believe. Hello. Yes, that's right. I, I don't trust the phones. <laughs> you can sign up to be uh, put on the do not call list, I guess. No, no, I meant the tracking. Oh, but you do trust Microsoft. For the moment. Okay. Now, just to clarify, you are calling uh, Mr. Schultzman, representing, mm-hmm. I believe, Miss Manigault Newman in, in some capacity? In every capacity. Oh. I'm not her, uh, her agent per, uh, per capita sake. No, I'm, but I'm, I'm sorry, it, what does that mean? That I'm not her agent? No, no, no. Per capita say, you said. Yeah. It's just Latin, like uh, a more perfect e pluribus union. Okay. And uh, you're calling rather than her yeah. because... Yeah, because her interviews are contractually limited to outlets which can actually help her book sales. Okay. I can accept that. So, again, a, a scribbled note here from my producer. Mm. This uh, conversation has something to do with a new tape? Yes. Omarosa, as you know, is engaged in a controlled sequential release of significant recordings from her days at the White House Mm -hmm. to buttress the credibility of a book, which, to me, needs no buttressing. Well, I I think it's an an old show business adage. You can never have too much buttressing. Yeah, I suppose you're right. Uh, Mr. Schliffman, what can you tell us about this tape? It was recorded in the White House about two weeks before she was fired. Okay. It's just her and Mr. Trump wow. in the private residence portion of the building. Mm-hmm. And uh, this, the sound you hear in the background is a shaver. A shaver? Yes. 
Right. Yes, it makes sense. It all makes sense mm -hmm. once you hear it. Or not, depending on how open-minded you are. Okay, all right. Well, you've arranged to, uh, to what, play it down a separate line to us mm -hmm. because I, I guess you, you didn't want to lose custody of it? No, I was in my pajamas, and it's the weekend. Okay. So I guess uh, hit the playback button, and let's hear this latest Omarosa tape. Hey, hey, a little bit lower. Lower, lower. Left side lower. Honey, you did the right side. There was a spot I missed over there, though. Okay. So... Mrs. Trump doesn't want to, uh... Can you believe it? Three wives, not one is willing to shave my friggin' back? Hmm. I mean, for what they, uh, for what they made off of me, they should have... I don't know, they... Uh, they should have been willing to lick dog crap off my back. Up, 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 okay, up, okay, up. Okay, I mean, I mean, it is, uh, pretty lush back here. Yeah. You think I don't know it? <laughs> you know what would be great? Hmm? If my back hair was on my head, right? I, d I don't know if that's... But my guy says it wouldn't be worth a transplant or anything because mm -hmm. he says it's different hair. Well... It would look like I got a toupee off a chimp or something. Not a good look. No. Hey, hey easy. Oh, sorry. Wait. Kind of a stubborn patch there. Yeah, I, I know. I know. Oh. Ah. Mm -hmm. ah. The White House guy has the right tool for this. He, he doesn't want to do this either? Nah, nah. He'll do anything. Hey. He cut Obama's hair. You know what that's like. No offense. Of course not. But, uh, yeah, I don't want a man touching me behind my back. Mm -hmm. It's a little too, uh, Christopher Street West Villagey if you get the, uh, catch of my drift. <laughs> Ow. Hmm. And, uh, that's where the tape cuts off. Ah, I see. Wow. And then, and then two weeks later, she was fired? Yeah, I don't know if his chief of staff was unhappy with the shaving job or something else. Well, <laughs> we can only wonder. Well, you could also stay tuned for the next tape as well. We we could do that, mm -hmm. I suppose. Roger Schluffman, yeah. whatever you are, per se, with, with Omarosa, thank you for Skyping into the program today. Well, it was my job. And the show continues. Nothing matters, no mad, mad world, and no mad hatters. No one's pitching, cause there ain't no batters in Coconut Grove. Don't bar the door, there's no one coming. The ocean's roar will dull the drumming of any city, thoughts of city waves. The ocean breeze is cool. My mind, the salty days are hers and mine Just to do what we want Tonight we'll find a doom that's ours And softly she will speak the stars until sun up It's all from having someone knowing just which way your head is blowing Who's always warm like in the morning In coconut grove The ocean breeze is cool My mind, the salty days are hers and mine just to do what we wanted 
tonight we'll find a doom that's ours, and softly she will speak the stars until sun up. It's really true how nothing matters. No mad, mad world, and no mad hatters. No one's pitching 'cause there ain't no batters in Coconut Grove. From Santa Monica, California, this is Le Show. And now, ladies and gentlemen. Let me tell you about the bees. Yeah! Yeah! Well, you know about the problem with bees and neonicotinoid pesticides. It's, uh, it's screwing up the bees. They can be exposed to small amounts of insecticide each time they are their larvae fade on pollen and nectar, feed on pollen and nectar. Though that doesn't kill the bees, it can have sublethal effects impairing a range of behaviors like learning, learning and foraging, just those things, affecting nesting success, colony development and reproduction, and reducing pollination levels. Aside from that, Mrs. Lincoln, the bees are fine. So substantial restrictions on neonic use have been introduced in some regions of the world, particularly Europe. Damn Europe! This now from nature. Such restrictions might seem to be good news for bee health only if the insecticides that replace neonicotinoids I'll get it right one of these days are less harmful to insect pollinators. Well, come on stage. Welcome, welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Sulfoxamine-based insecticides. They're absorbed and systematically distributed through the plant, just like neonics. Sulfoxamines are tipped to replace neonics, have already been widely approved for use. A team of uh, researchers found that sulfoxiflor, that's a form of sulfoxamine, a sulfoxiflor pesticide exposure had substantial and consistent effects on the rate of bee colony growth, apparent after just two to three weeks. Sulfoxiflor exposed colonies produced fewer female workers than did control colonies. You don't want that. They also produced 54% fewer reproductive offspring, predominantly driven by a decrease in the total number of males produced. It's also reflecting the fact that all of the 36 new queens produced came from just three of the control colonies, such strong variation in queen production among control colonies is not unexpected, but the lack of queen production by any of the insecticide-exposed colonies is concerning because queens are needed to start new colonies in the following year. Not enough queens, not enough female workers. I get the picture. News of the bees. Just one more note on um, news of the godly. Axios reports that uh, the grand jury report on uh, Pennsylvania sexual predation among priests has this fascinating little detail. In one case, a priest raped a girl, got her pregnant, and arranged an abortion. The bishop in charge 
of the diocese, expressed his feelings in a letter. Quote, This is a very difficult time in your life, and I realize how upset you are. I, too, share your grief. Unquote. The letter was not written to the girl. It was addressed to the rapist. And now... so smart. America's largest manufacturer of body cameras, biggest supplier to police forces across the United States, says today's facial recognition technology is not safe for making serious decisions. The CEO of Axon, Rick Smith, answered a question about whether the company would be adding facial recognition systems to its suite of products. He said current facial recognition is simply not accurate enough to make operational decisions, i.e. for police to use it to recognize individuals and use positive responses as justification for automatically and unquestioningly apprehending people. We don't have a timeline to launch facial recognition, he said, noting that Axon doesn't have a team actively developing it either. This is technology we don't believe the accuracy thresholds are right where they need to be to make operational decisions off of facial recognition. That doesn't stop the uh, Metropolitan Police in England, London as a matter of fact, from running a controversial trial of facial recognition software at a number of public events. Hey, it's only England. And once upon a time you sold your car, handed over the keys, logbook, registration certificate, and pocketed the cash or bought a new car and thought no more about it. Not anymore. Today's connected world, you have just sold a computer on wheels. As of late last year, there were around 9 million Internet-connected cars just on British roads. This report from the National Cyber Security Center of England. Most new cars have features that allow the owner to interact with the vehicle, even when nowhere near it. Set climate control, uploading sat-nav destination details, GPS we'd call it, and more. This information is then stored in the online account associated with your car. The data is not the only personal information that remains with the car. Phones that have been paired with the car probably should be unpaired when the car is sold. Otherwise, the new owner... <laughs> yeah, right. When selling an old phone or device, most people would ensure that any personal data on it was completely wiped. The same principle applies when an Internet-connected car is sold. It's the seller's responsibility to disable the online account that they used with that car. That's in the terms and conditions that your car manufacturer puts in really tiny print to make it easy to read. Some customers may fail to delete their personal accounts and access. When the car is then sold on, the previous owner can track and monitor the car's location and other data without the new owner's knowledge. The key message is to treat a modern car like any other connected device, delete all personal data, and disable the account that's been used with it before it's sold. Or not. Meantime, Ars Technica reports that a, um, at a security symposium in Baltimore this week, a Princeton University professor of electrical engineering presented research that showed that if Wi-Fi-based High-wattage appliances become common. These would be your ovens, your fridges, 
They could conceivably be used to manipulate electrical demand over a wide area, potentially causing local blackouts and even cascading failures of regional electric grids. The research used models of real-world power grids to simulate the effects of a manipulation of demand Internet of Things attack or a mad mad IOT attack. Madiot. Looks like idiot, but it's Madiot. It found that even swings in power usage that will be within the normal range of appliances, such as air conditioners, ovens, and electric heating systems, connected to smart home systems would be enough to cause fluctuations in demand that could trigger grid failures. We've seen one sort of attack occur already in Plattsburgh, New York, when cryptocurrency miners, these are people who are trying to make new Bitcoin, raised power demand so much it exceeded the allotment the city's utility had under its contract with Quebec Hydro on the other side of the border. Those damn Canadians, the Saudis are right. This forced the utility to buy power on the spot market, much more expensive. Just a 5% increase in power demand during peak hours created by an attack could result in an increase of power costs of 20%. This type of attack might be driven by financial incentives rather than a desire to cause damage. Blame Quebec Hydro. In a blackout event, a Madiot effect could severely impede attempts to bring power back online. All this is dependent on high-wattage appliances, heaters, fridges, air conditioners, being coming connected and vulnerable. Oh, that would never happen. Many of these appliances are now arriving on the market with connectivity built in or are being connected through home automation hubs like Nest. Researcher said in his presentation, the time to start figuring out how to counter such attacks is now, by which he means five years ago. Because it's such a smart world. Of course, helping it get smarter, our friend the Atom. Clean, safe, too cheap to meet. Save, cheap, too cheap to meet. Cheap, save, too safe to meet. Save, save, too safe to meet. Completing the only nuclear construction project in the United States will cost an additional $1.1 billion. Hey, I got that on me. The expansion at Plant Vocal, Votal, Votal, V-O-G-T-L-E, Votal, south of Augusta, Georgia, is already years late and billions over budget. So what's another billion? Uh, two new reactors at the plant up and running by November 22 and 21, completion dates that are already years behind initial projections. That's from Southern Company, the company that wants to build them, or is building them. Company officials just told investors the estimated cost to complete the project jumped from $7.3 billion to $8.4 billion. And that might just be the start. We recognize that a nuclear construction project can continue to experience challenges and that unanticipated events may require further revision to the forecast, unquote. Southern Company took over after the former contractor, Westinghouse, filed for bankruptcy last year. There's a clue. Here's another one. Temperatures in uh, Tokyo, as we said, rising to record highs. Power companies have turned to solar power to weather the surge in air conditioner usage. TEPCO. Remember TEPCO? They had the uh, nuclear plant that went... Uh, Well, before that, nearly 30% of TEPCO's annual electricity output was nuclear-derived. Now, they're operating no nuclear plants and suspending operation at two oil-fired oil fired, pl- fired plants, TEPCO's doing fine. 
Quote, a company executive, it's safe to say TEPCO's strategy hinges now on solar power. It can't go... TEPCO, the self-same TEPCO, has suspended the sale of souvenirs at Fook just eight days after launching the product because it was public outcry that it was trying to profit from the disaster. They were selling plastic file folders imprinted with pictures of the damaged units at two of TEPCO's convenience stores after receiving requests for memorabilia from visitors and workers. A radiologically contaminated piece of equipment left the Hanford Nuclear Reservation in Washington State and was taken into North Richland, the surrounding city, town, by mistake, according to a message sent to Hanford employees. The equipment, a spreader bar, had been used at the plutonium finishing plant. Spreading plutonium wherever they go. A former head of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission said Southern California Edison should stop burying nuclear waste next to the beach at San Onofre, closer to San Diego than to Los Angeles. Greg Jasko was the head of the NRC in 2012 when Edison shut down San Onofre because of a radioactive leak. He said plans to move the waste elsewhere in the United States may never materialize. Spokeswoman for the uh, company, Maureen Brown, said the company has now transferred more than 26 canisters, one-third of the radioactive spent nuclear fuel, into dry storage on the site. The canisters are loaded with spent fuel rods, moved across the site, and lowered into vertical casks set in concrete. Concrete casks are right next to a seawall. The uh, chief nuclear officer of the company said the plan is to move the nuclear waste elsewhere, maybe Texas and New Mexico, once it is cooled enough to move it. Jasco said, don't count on it. Once they get loaded, I don't see the, they mean the ca- He means the casks, not the... Uh, I don't see them ever taking those canisters out of there. Realistically, they're not going to move them out. Those permits will be extended. The operational period will be extended indefinitely. You will have a de facto burial site there at the beach. The problem with what to do with nuclear waste, as you know, is a national one. The federal government has not agreed on a long-term storage site. Yucca Mountain, out of the picture now. There's a tendency, says Jasco, to make to want to make the problem go away emotionally and mentally. When you bury things, it's easier mentally not to worry about them. Very quickly, people came to this conclusion that the way you solve this problem is you find a place where you can bury and forget. Unquote Jasco from formerly of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. The company that makes the casks that are being buried, has uh, that's called Holtec, has made sure the bottom of the buried cask is just above the mean high tide level. That's not going to change anytime soon. And you want that stuff to get wet again, don't you, with salt water? Holtec says our goal is to maintain the canisters in such a pristine state they can be readily hauled off to New Mexico as soon as the federal government is able to so order, unquote. That's... Not happening anytime soon. Holtec and Edison are still working on ways to inspect and monitor the casks for cracking. They're working on it. They'll, 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 they'll get around to it. Where better to store your high-level nuclear waste? Well, well, medium level. So-so level. Where better to store it than right by the beach? 
grab your honey and be sure to tell a friend. Tell a friend. Tell a friend. Just cruise down along the coast. Don't let barbed wire get in your way. Hey, hey. I know a real special place where nothing but the isotopes decay. gentlemen news of the warm won't you it's 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 good news not really yes we can but we won't bird communities in the mojave desert straddling the california nevada line have collapsed over the past hundred years most likely because of lower rainfall due to climate change, according to a study from UC Berkeley, a three-year survey of the area, which is larger than the state of New York and is not governed by a Cuomo, concludes that 30 percent 
of the 135 bird species that were there 100 years ago are less common, less common than muck, and are less widespread today. The sites surveyed lost on average 43% of the species that were there a century ago. But it's a desert. Who needs birds? You know what I'm saying? Neither do I. It happened before. It can happen again. That says uh, that's what the ocean scientists at the University of Toronto eh, and the University of California Santa Cruz say in a study published in Science showing how an increase in CO2 in Earth's atmosphere more than 50 million years ago dramatically changed the chemistry of the oceans. If contemporary global carbon emissions continue to rise, the future of many fish species in our oceans could be at risk. Well, losing the birds, losing the fish, but we've still got plastics. Common plastics are releasing greenhouse gases into the atmosphere as they degrade, much like uh, old sitcoms. No, sorry, a new study has shown that, according to Sky News. Greenhouse gases have a direct impact on climate change, have been previously linked to all the bad stuff we know about. The research carried on by the University of Hawaii discovered methane is released as plastic is broken down. Methane, as you know, is a powerful greenhouse gas, more, much more powerful than CO2, but more short-lived. Well, that's the good news. The plastics studied are used to create a variety of everyday items, food storage, textiles, construction materials. Polyethylene, commonly used in plastic bags, was responsible for producing the greatest amount of the greenhouse gases. This newly discovered source of methane has not been factored into global estimates and could prove to be significant in future predictions. Adjust your models. Go! Deadline Saudi Arabia, scientists have discovered the first molecular evidence that when exposed to environmental stress, corals and their good friends anemones can optimize their gene expression, enabling them to acclimatize to extreme conditions, such as those experienced during climate change. We could train toughened corals in nurseries to improve their thermal resilience, helping them to better cope with rising sea temperatures before outplanting them in the reefs, says Dr. Manuel Aranda, lead author at the Red Sea Research Center at King Abdullah University. Genetic adaptation is a slow process because it requires beneficial mutations to spread through the population. Our findings are important because epigenetic mechanisms present a potentially fast way to increase the survivability of corals in light of the current speed at which climate change progresses. This research could have a huge impact on the conservation of economically valuable reef formations upon which countless marine organisms rely for habitat. Training corals to uh, be more resilient. You corals, listen up! You just need a a couple of coral drill drill sergeants, it seems to me. But what do I know? Trees are growing more rapidly due to climate change. As a matter of fact, according to... uh, The Independent Online, the biggest ever analysis of global land change, has discovered there are more trees across the earth today than there were 36 years ago. This is published in the uh, journal Nature. Trees now cover 7% more of the earth's surface. Net loss in the tropics being outweighed by a net gain in the extra tropics. Shop now! Extra tropics available. 60% of all change appears to be directly driven by human activity. For the remaining 40%, most of the change can be attributed to indirect results of human actions. Hey, we run the place. But that does sound like good news 
meaning the trees are storing more carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and their wood, taking away the key ingredient in global warming. But a team from the Technical University of Munich, TUM, analyzed wood samples from the oldest existing experimental areas spanning a period of 150 years, reaching a surprising conclusion. The team examined wood samples from several hundred trees using a high-tech procedure, measuring the specific weight of the wood with an accuracy and resolution which until recently was unthinkable, says one of the researchers. What they found, annually growing wood has gradually become lighter since observations began by up to 8 to 12 percent since 1900. So the volume growth of the trees has accelerated by 29 to 100 percent. So a greater volume of wood being produced today, it now contains less material than just a few decades ago. It's not because of the rapid growth. The decrease in wood density we're talking about, says the lead researcher, is is due to other factors. The long-term increase in temperature due to climate change and the resulting lengthening of the vegetation period. And the nitrogen input from agriculture, traffic, and industry also play a part. So it's, it's trees should be thanking us. For, lighter wood is less solid, has a lower calorific value. This is critical for numerous application scenarios ranging from construction to energy production. Less solid wood in living trees also increases the risk of damage events, breakage due to wind and snow. But the most important finding is that current climate-relevant carbon sequestration of the forests is being overestimated, the carbon captured by trees, as long as it is calculated with established but outdated wood densities, you see. New research from Indiana University suggests computer models used to predict the spread of epidemics from climate change may not take into account an important factor in predicting their severity. Pathogens that grow inside organisms at higher temperatures produce offspring that cause higher rates of infection compared to normal pathogens. Climate can cause an echo effect in future pathogens, ultimately making them more infectious. And corals and algae have been leaning on each other since dinosaurs roamed the Earth. You read about it in all the books, the dinosaurs, much longer than has been previously thought, according to research from Oregon State and Penn State. Two states. The findings published in Current Biology are a key advance toward better understanding of current reefs. Maybe the algae can train them to be more resilient. They're not doing anything else. They're just hanging out there. The symbiosis between corals and uh, algae goes back 160 million years, about 100 million years longer than scientists had thought, according to an international research collaboration. Some symbioses between algae and corals are more resilient than others to changes in the environment, so scientists might try to encourage those symbioses. Or just yell at the coral. News of the Warm, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast.
Ladies and gentlemen, you probably don't know this, but power now has been restored to all of Puerto Rico. For the first time since Hurricane Maria struck nearly 11 months ago. It didn't take long, almost just one month short of a year. The electric utility announced crews working in the southern city of Ponce reconnected the last neighborhood that had been offline since the storm knocked out the U.S. territory's power grid. Yeah, they're U.S. citizens. I forgot that. The island-wide outage was the longest continuous blackout in U.S. history. But, you know, Donald Trump. Ladies and gentlemen, that's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week at the same time. If you listen at the same time on your audio device of choice, otherwise it's it's totally up to you. Just come on back, won't you? Because it'll be like power being restored in less than 11 months, if you'd agree to join with me then. Would you all righty? Thank you very much. Uh-huh. A tip of the show, chapeau to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago, not in exile in Hawaii desks. Thanks, as always, to Pam Halstead and to Jenny Lawson at WWNO New Orleans for their help in making today's broadcast and podcast existful. The email address for this program, a playlist of the music heard here on, and your chance to get Cars I Talk t-shirts in time for the big Labor Day picnic, all at harryshearer.com. And speaking of Harry Shearer, I'm on Twitter, at the Harry Shearer. Not a coincidence, right? The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Change is Easy Radio Network. Song from the home of the homeless. <laughs>